Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 18, 2024, episode 239, Successful Failure. Hello everyone, welcome into the corner. I'm Kevin England here again for another episode of the Beekeeper's Corner. It's February 18th, 2024, which by my way of thinking should be a national holiday as the Daytona 500 is going to start in a few hours. And well, I wanted to get this show prepped this morning so that I could sit back and enjoy the start of the NASCAR season, which is akin to Super Bowl Sunday around here, except that instead of marching down the field, we're slamming into the banking of the 31 degrees at the Daytona International Speedway. Yeah, enough of that foolishness. Let me say hello and turn to beekeeping. I'm going to open the show with a short plug for our program and getting started in beekeeping. If you're starting out and you want some support, we've shared our program for training new beekeepers to the world at large. We hate to see beekeepers struggle, and we know it's hard to get sound advice and answers to your questions. If you visit managedmentoring.com and look through the first year track, you're going to find a series of curated videos that takes you through every facet of getting your sea legs to becoming a competent beekeeper. We say beginner beekeeper classes are great. They're a great primer for you, highly encouraged, but many of them simply do not go beyond the information that you need to support you through the beekeeping season, especially as you maintain your bees. And we say, why struggle? The program's free. We created it for our New Jersey beekeepers. And after people heard about it, they asked us to share it with them. And so, well, we shared the wealth and now we have beekeeping clubs from across the U.S. using the content for their local programs. Give it a look. And if you like what you see, sign up for the supporting online sessions, which kick off at the end of this February. You go through the lessons on your own, on your own time. And then if you have any questions that didn't get answered, you can come in and we'll answer for you live. Twice a month. Any question that you have, we're there for you. Managementoring.com is the web address. Now let's talk about what we have in store for this episode. Two topics to cover. I get to do one of my favorite things when it comes to producing content for this show. Topic number one is a showcase on a conversation that we had with a local beekeeper while we were on vacation in Florida. If you're new to the program, the premise of the show is always something along the lines of beekeepers having a conversation and whatever you want to talk about in the moment. Most of the time, the episodes are me pretending to talk to you, but other times it's literally recording of a conversation between beekeepers. That's going to be the case with our interactions with Al Grissom, who we met while on vacation in Florida. Topic number two is about handling ingredients in a short series that I'm going to kick off in this show about making mead. I've termed this series Successful Failure, and if you listen to the piece in the episode, you'll understand the moniker for this. 
I still consider myself a novice mead maker, even though I've been making mead for multiple years. And if you're new to beekeeping, mead is like wine, but it's made instead of using grapes and water, you use honey and water. And when you branch out, you can add other things in to make variations of mead, like fruit. I think the craft of making a really good mead, a proper mead, is an evolution evolution of practice makes perfect. And every year we try to make a point to dedicate some time to branching out to different techniques and exploring different variations of mead, but still staying true to fundamentals. Even if you don't plan on making mead, there's always information in this type of thing that you could use in your general beekeeping practice. In this year's incarnation of mead making, we explored how to make a boche, which is a caramelized honey-based mead. Additionally, I'm working with different fruit bases, and I wanted to talk about how I handled those fruits when preparing this round of mead. So topic number two is going to cover the first couple segments in the successful failure series of what we learned about making mead and this one focuses on handling ingredients kevin at bkcorner.org is my email write me in if you have anything you want to share with me otherwise i'm going to stop yakking here and let's go ahead and get into the show to open the show i want to tell you about an adventure that we had when we were in florida on vacation last november I'm going to spend a few minutes setting this up, and then I'm going to play you a recording made with the local beekeeper we met. Now, I don't know if we're unique in this way, but every time we go somewhere, whether it's on a personal vacation or some planned trip, we try to build into the schedule somewhere to do something about beekeeping. It's just how we roll. And I have to say, as I think about this in this moment, that I appreciate the fact that Sharon's come a long way in this. Originally, she would do it because she knows that I was infatuated with beekeeping, and to woo her man, she would go along with it. I always thought that somewhere along the line, she would get over that and put her foot down. Now, that's not to say she wouldn't say no, but I had a perceived thought that she'd probably grow a little tired and a little more choosy about us investing vacation time to seek pursuits about beekeeping because, you know, we're on vacation after all. So given I have that perception of being fair, I try not to go overboard with doing these things. But I must say, we never really lost the practice of working these little adventures in. And now it almost feels routine to see if, whenever we're out and about planning a trip to go somewhere let's say, in the summertime, we look to see whether we can find a beekeeping thing to look in on. At minimum, one of the things that we do when we're looking at options, when we're planning, and I'll share this with you, is that we try to source some local honey to bring back home. Especially if we're in some interesting place or there's some unusual honey varietal that we come across that we want to bring back for tastings. Uh, Kevin Mullen, I want to say out loud, I would encourage you to do that. Usually it's not that complicated 
to find some honey when out in your travels. And as long as bringing you back doesn't get you into trouble with the airlines, well, I always feel like it's fun for us to pick up a jar along the way and reflect where it came from. And I'm sure that I told the story about us trying to find honey in England when we went that one year. Now, come to think of it, I'm pretty sure we just finished a jar that we found came from Detroit, Michigan over the weekend. End of Kevin moment. As I reflect on our last few trips, to visit my mother-in-law in Florida, we've gone out on honey adventures every time, which I think is kind of cool now that I mull that over. For this past November's occasion, we built in a stop to a local beekeeper operating in Brooksville, Florida, which is just down the road a piece from where we're staying. I'm rather confident that what we attempted was aligned to some notes that I had taken one time about stopping in to see someone that I had met at EIS. The funny thing is, when we got to the beekeeping operation that I was hunting, there wasn't a soul around. And I cannot tell you if the person I was trying to connect with was actually the one from EIS. We never talked to them. I'm pretty sure it was the right operation. And, well, if any of you folks from Honey Badger are listening to the show, you need to send me a note, kevin at bkcorner.org. Next time I'll make more of a point to connect with you before we come over and try to find you. But know that we stopped by your place, and I'm sorry to say we missed you. Undaunted, we had a backup, a second place that my mother-in-law, Dolores, had found, and that is the connection I'm going to tell you about. As it is with Florida, you drive down some back road and you find yourself there. South of Brookfield, heading down Interstate 41, Route 41, you hang a left onto Power Road and then you make a right onto Ensley and you'll find yourself at the honey stand of Al and Emless Grissom. At the end of the driveway, you'll see a covered patch of asphalt that has a simple stand of shelves showing the bounty of honey products for sale. We pulled up, hopped out of the car, and walked over to the self-service stand and started to take in what was for sale. At first it looked like a couple different honeys, but as you looked around it became evident that there was a little more to this and I could describe it as a small little outdoor store. Straight in front of you were multiple varieties of honey in different packaging that ranged from little honey bears to gallon jugs and everything in between. Sitting in front of each of these was a collection of varietals with tasting honey bears and spoons. And so you were supposed to help yourself to a tasting so you could know what the honey was going to taste like and choose the one that favors you. Hanging off the left side from the cabana were multiple forms of homemade birdhouses to choose from. And off to the right side was a separate display where they were selling local eggs. The honey display was labeled with a handful of informational signs, including a big one that indicated the property was under surveillance by video cameras, which was abundant because, well, you know, they were pretty conspicuous. On that particular day, there were four types of honey for sale. There was a light wildflower that looked like everyday honey, a dark wildflower that had an interesting reddish hue to it, there was a mango and palm 
offering, and off to the side, a wild berry, wildflower variation. There was a sign there about the type of honey varietals that they offered for sale across the year, and apparently some of their stuff was sold out. If you came from February to April, you might find orange blossom honey, and if you came from June to August, they sell saw pimento, pimento honey. So Sharon and my mother-in-law, Dolores, were tasting the honeys and pulling the collection of jars that they intended to purchase when we saw someone ride up on an ATV. It turns out that's Al Grissom. The owner of the property was clear on the greeting that he was the beekeeper. We started with a little idle chit-chat about his store, and I think he was just kind of sizing us up like, what were we doing? And during the course of introductions, we shared with him that we were beekeepers, and he did the neatest thing. He turned back, walked over to his ATV, shut off the engine, and then wandered back to us with the intention of taking some time to have a conversation and spend time with us. We started talking about beekeeping and a couple things, and I asked him a couple questions about his operation. And I had left my phone in the car because we didn't see anyone around. I excused myself for a moment from the conversation and wandered to the console of the vehicle, picked it up, and brought it back to record what is to follow. Now, prior to hitting record, he shared with us that he keeps his bees on pallets and takes them in and out of different locations around his home yard. And I guess this is why he has all the different honey varietals. And he shared an odd comment that seemed to leave me with an impression that his actual property he was using more for staging and getting his bees prepped for moving in and out of the different things. That's the practice that he's developed over time. And it seemed like maybe his local location wasn't the greatest for harvesting and he was more accustomed to moving his bees to forage throughout Florida in the spring and the summertime. You know, I'm going to stop talking. I think you can conjure up the typical Florida setting at the end of a driveway, standing at a bee stand alongside a tree-spotted property with a beekeeper's house in the background. Just conjure up that image, and here we go. I've never taken a class. I've I've Is that learned, right? I've learned everything by the bootstraps. That's awesome. Well, obviously you're doing a good job at it. <laughs> uh, 81 years right here selling honey. Wow. I'm, excuse me, uh, 41. 81. Yeah. yeah. I'm not 81 years old yet. I'm I was going to say, you didn't look 81. I'm, I'm She's 81, my mother-in-law. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I'm 78, so I'm still a spring Can chick. I take your picture? Is that okay? Can I comb my hair first? Yes. Do I need to? <laughs> uh, I mean, this has just been my awesome. Wife, my wife yeah. always tells me every t every time she turns around, she's your hair needs combing. Aw, so you carry your comb. Yep. I'm Thanks, glad sir. you came down. This is great. Well, when I see different people, I like to explain yes. to them about my beekeeping and, and how I do it. Most beekeepers in this area, they move their bees with pallets and right, forklifts right. and all that. Right. And so their honey is all mixed up. Oh. Where when I go to move them, they have to be empty. 
So when wow. I take them from my house or from where I where they overwintered to the first flowers, I rob every drop of honey off of them. Take them in there with empty supers. Ah. I harvest that honey, then take all, every drop off and take them to the next flora. So the different floras. So that's why you know I the separate it, and yeah. so that's okay. how you get mm -hmm, the different mm -hmm, flavors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, you did a great job. Yes, very nice. And I have a uh, a forty four frame centrifuge. That, oh wow! That I spin out. I only run twenty five hives. If I get more than twenty five, <laughs> I got a, a young guy that I mentor, and. I give them to him because I don't want more than 25. 25 is a lot. It's a, it's a, you know. <laughs> I, I have uh, anywhere from 15 to 20 and I work full time. So yeah, he, I you know, know he's you working. He's like, huh. Well, I worked full time too for the first 25 years of yeah. the beekeeping. Did you? Yeah. So I, I did it on the weekends. Yep. And, that's, but yep. again, I had a, an old beekeeper that took me under his wing and he, he really made me kind of angry at him because I would go and spend a whole weekend working with him moving he had 50 hives and he had a big trailer and we'd load them up and move them but basically the same thing we'd rob all the honey off before we moved them boom 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 and he never once gave me one jar is that right <laughs> and really it that's really crazy irritated me so now if I got a young guy to help me one day, I give him a gallon. Absolutely, to help me. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And that's it. That's a funny story. Oh, he was he was cheap. Some cheap, people cheap. are in their now, ways, aren't when, they? When we were out working, he would buy my lunch. Okay. But no honey. <laughs> yeah, liquid gold, right? I guess well, he took it literally. When I first moved. When I first moved to this location, I was working in St. Petersburg. And, uh, well, first, I started, I was born and raised in Williston, which is south of Gainesville. Okay. Okay, okay yeah. Uh, little country town. Uh, no work there, so I went to St. Pete to get a job. And I was mechanically inclined. So I got a job with National Cash Register fixing cash registers back when they went ka-ching-ching, ka-ching-ching. Yeah. Ka -ching -ching. <laughs> and I was there for two years and some guy come in and said he saw an electric cash register. And so we all had to go down to the bar to see it. And the guy had put a lamp cord and a light on its cash register with a cord going to the wall. But then the next year, of course, they come out with electric they cash registers yeah. with an electric motor. That would ruin them, and I went all the way through from the old kachung kachungies all the way up to. Uh, at the end, I was working on ATMs and uh, Walmart, everything electronic between wow. the four walls. NCR maintains. I'm going to break into the recording right here and tell you a little funny thing that happened while we were talking to uh, Al. He was talking about honey products and so on and about his uh, career working for the cash register company. And at some point, he figured out we were friendly folks. And so he was standing behind his cabinet that had all his honey sitting out. And he opened the drawer and he 
pulled out a bottle of mead, <laughs> a couple of glasses. He went on to tell us at, at some point that, you know, for friends who stop by every once in a while, he always keeps mead there so that when he can have a quick conversation with somebody who stops by, maybe they'll have a glass of mead and enjoy. And so somewhere along the line, he pulled out a glass of mead, poured us a couple, and we were sipping, and then we got into the topic of talking about how to make mead. And what follows is what he was talking about. He started to talk about his technique and specifically how he was measuring the sugars. And that's where we pick up and you, you hear um, him tell the story of the old fashioned way that it was done before people had hydrometers. And it's a pretty interesting thing that he talked about. At some point he was having the conversation about his career and stuff and he made a comment that if I would appreciate he would appreciate because he knew I was recording for the podcast that I not include that um, so I had turned the recording off but then he started to talk about how he started to make mead and you know I we had the commentary about whether we could turn the recording back on and you hear the pick up here where he's starting to describe the process that can you we have, record it? You have to do this again. That's just fascinating. Because I have never heard that's this. That's just fascinating. Well, this is the way okay, the Vikings made yeah. mead. Okay. Okay. I take four gallons of water, mm -hmm. and I take one gallon of this honey, yeah. and I stir it up with the water slightly warm so it dissolves good. Then I go to the chicken yard, and I get a fresh raw egg, from the chicken yard, this will not work with a store-bought egg. It's got to be a fresh, raw egg. Okay. You put it in the mash, you let it settle to the bottom, mm -hmm. and then you add more honey until that egg floats. Yeah. And it takes a little over a quart additional. And that egg, when it floats to the top, is the perfect water-to-sugar ratio for fermentation. Okay. Then... I put the airlock on it. I let it usually takes three to four days to kick off and start brewing, but the yeast is in the honey. Yep. And it will kick off and start brewing. I had one batch that did not. So I went to the store and I bought red grapes that had the white yep. casting on yep. the outside yep. and I added them to it to, to spike it off. But just for the yeast that's on the outside of the grape is, is the purpose of it. Right. But then I let it brew until it goes slack. Now, I'm in the honey house every day, bottling or, or bringing honey up here or something. So the day it goes slack and quits bubbling, I add usually about a quart more honey and stir it in, and then it'll go back to bubbling. It'll go again? Okay. Sometimes I go to the third, the third time I usually add just half a quart and then I add sugar to taste. And when it actually quits brewing completely, it's because the alcohol got so strong that it killed the yeast. Yeah. And then again, I, I just do it to taste. And 
that's normally about seven months we're at now and it's a very cloudy mixture and i just let it sit there for another two months and it'll settle and then i rack it and then i let it settle again and i rack it before i bring it up so do you do you let it sit on the lees you never take it off the dead yeast I take a rack when I rack it. That's taking it off the. But dead after yeast. seven months, it's been sitting on whatever is laying in the bottom. I, and it has I no rack problem. it at that point. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've read books where it explains the egg technique that you've had. Oh, you have. Yeah. Well, I had a friend who I was, I was making, the wine, and he loved it. He's crazy about it. Okay. And he tells me, he yeah, says. Arm, you, leg, sure. <laughs> okay. you, you want yeah. me to bring the golf cart around? You can sit on the seat. No, I'm all right. Oh, okay. But anyway, this friend was raving about how he loved my wine, how he loved my wine. But you're not doing it right. You need a <laughs> hydrometer. You got to use a hydrometer. I says, no, Rod, I don't have to use a hydrometer. This works fine. Oh, no, you, you, and, and you got to put these pills in it to, to stop the brewing and you know all of this stuff i says no so he comes in one day with his oh, here's you a hydrometer and i don't remember what all else a bottle washer and two or three other things he brought me and i says oh i says let let me make a batch and i'll show you so i used this technique and when it, the egg floated to the top i filled his hydrometer Perfect. Perfect. Right to the line. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And he couldn't believe it. Yeah. That's a tried and true method. That's a pretty. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's right. That's great. But over the years, I've been making various wines for going on 70 years. Wow. <laughs> because I started about age seven helping my uncle. Okay. And he would go, and we had a family live not too far from us, up Levy County, where I was born and raised. And they were not well-to-do, and the gentleman had a bad back, and the kids were always barefooted, and, you know. So he would get them to pick blackberries, and he would buy, buy wild blackberries and make his own wine and i helped him make the wine it was my job to pour the sugar and mix it yeah. and go get the egg so i've been making wine okay. since i was seven right. with the egg, right. with the egg but method. when i got uh into bee business and i was cleaning out one day when i got through oh here comes here here comes my delivery for the day my <laughs> third delivery for the day <laughs> but when when I was cleaning out one day, I had a wax melter, and I melt the wax off of the the, the cappings. Right. And so after I got through the second time, you save the honey when you do it that way. And then the second time, I run it through a second time with hot water, okay. and let it run into the melting cappings into the hot water. Thirty-two sixty-one. That's it. All right. Grissom. Yes, sir. Uh.
Morning. How you guys doing? Morning. It's the afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. <laughs> I'm on vacation, so. And, 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 and y'all gave the heavy one to the post office. Oh, yeah? That poor girl had to struggle up here with a, a 40 pound package oh, earlier. <laughs> Thank you. You guys have a good one. You too. Take care. Anyway, uh, I've been making the, the wine from just about anything. I've made it from wild persimmon. I've made it from domestic persimmon. Nice. I've made it from uh, tangerine juice. I've used uh, strawberries. Blueberries is actually the, the second to this. Blueberry is fantastic. But the cost of blueberries, I used to trade honey to a blueberry grower. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And, and so I made the blueberry wine. Now, the way I make wine is I take that five-gallon bucket and I fill it full of fruit. And then I add enough water to it that you can just see the water. Okay. And then I got a paint mixer that my best friend made for me out of stainless steel. And I put my high-speed drill on it. And I put a lid on the bucket with a hole drilled in it so it doesn't give me a shower. Right. And I shred the fruit. And then once you shred it, I squeeze the juice out. And th then I start with the, the, the sugar. Yeah. The honey. Wow. And that sounds awesome. So it's, it's pure fruit juice. Mm, yeah. And so, but my, uh, I do have, I'm not sure. Did you ever not. get jet fuel? You ever get the natural yeast turn the, the, the meat into something that doesn't taste very good? That happens sometimes. I had one time I made vinegar yeah yeah one time one batch in my whole life went to vinegar one batch but i have made it from apricots from grapes from persimmons from you just about name it i've made we it. made rinse water mead where you rinse the extractor out with a little bit of water and the residual honey until you get it and you just put it in the refrigerator wow just and let it, it came go. out pretty yeah. Pretty good, pretty good but it has a little bit of like a champagne vinegar yeah to it. Vinegary, yeah. maybe it's got a little too I've much had water people right? tell me you about uh, uh, silo mead too yeah from when they put the put the silo mash in the silo and it they put a a big tub in there with a plastic bag to yeah. gather everything awesome thank you yeah thank you that's Appreciate that was it. awesome well, we'll let you get back to whatever you're doing. Thank you. Okay, Pleasure okay. to meet you. Yep, yep, good to meet you folks. Yeah. For topic number two of this episode, I am going to start what I'm going to call the Successful Failure Series. It's an odd thing, but let me explain. I had mentioned in recent episodes that we made mead over the holiday break. We being Bob Kloss and I. Continuing the theme of this episode, since we were just talking about mead, I wanted to take my turn to talk a little bit about what we learned in our mead-making foray this winter. One of the components of the ingredients that we used this year was a boche, 
If you're not familiar with that term or missed the episode where I talked about that, a boche is honey that has been heated until it's caramelized. And in a previous episode, I talked about how I went about doing that. That's apropos when I say one of the recipes we made this year is a peach mead with caramelized honey. We were focused on adding fruit add-ins for making mead this go-around. We made peaches, and in the case of the peaches, we're not in peach season. So ingredient-wise, I want to talk a little bit about the fruit additions. That's the focus here. And I'm going to say that we use canned peaches. Because I found a recipe for canned peach mead. The first question when taking this tactic is, how do you prepare the peaches to make the mead? You know, of course, there's several ways you can go, and I think all of them are perfectly suitable. But by my way of thinking, I wanted to get the best extraction I could when it came to absorbing the essence of the fruit for, obviously, a fruit-based mead. When it came to the peaches, my decision was to puree them. I blended them until they essentially became a peach puree. And when you use a fruit that introduces additional sugar into the base mead as you assemble it, you have to account for how those sugars in the peaches add to the sugars in the honey to add to the must so that when you mix water in it, you can reach the right ratio of sugars to water for the yeast to feed on. That brings you to another decision which is, do you or do you not add the liquids that came in the can of peaches? Call me cheap, but I made the decision to include them as I made up the must. I tasted that sugar solution that the peaches were packed in, and they had quite a bit of peach flavor and didn't want it to go to waste. I will say that the amount of sugar water, liquid, contributed to the overall must was trivial compared to the quantities of honey that we used when we made up the two five-gallon carboys. I have to come now to the point of why this series is called Successful Failure. It was not a good day as far as my intelligence quotient on the afternoon that we put the mead together. I really do know better, but for some reason, I referenced the wrong gauge on the hydrometer. And when we mixed everything up, it was far too diluted by the time I found my mistake. How do you fix that? To compensate for what we ended up with, we had to open additional honey and bring the must to the right sugar balance. I had planned to make a boche based mead and a peach boche and we ended up using all of the caramelized boche in the peach boche to compensate for that. I think I mentioned in previous episodes that our plan was to make small batches this year, a couple different meads, and well, now I have gallons and gallons, and that's no exaggeration, of mead brewing after we finished compensating for the mistake. 
We got pretty far into making multiple batches before we discovered my oops. So we're going to have a lot of cherry mead too. I guess worse things could happen. You know, having an overabundance of mead underway. The really terrible thing was the amount of honey we used was absurdly expensive when mistakes go by. But we're beekeepers and we have lots of honey, so I guess that's not the worst thing that could happen in the world. Yeah, putting that aside, we're now in February and I've had a chance to check in on the mead. I can tell you now, reading the tea leaves, thankfully, and a couple tastings, that it is sizing up to be spectacular. In fact, this past week I spent time racking the liquid part of the mead off of the settled fruit solids in each of the containers. And I'll talk about that, why and how I did that, in just a moment. I want to take a moment, though, and talk about the treatment of the cherries that went into the cherry mead. Last summer, at the height of cherry season, we purchased enough cherries to make the mead that we have in progress. At that time, we pitted the cherries and double bagged them in freezer bags in the freezer for the December window of when we were going to make mead. So happy to have them out of there. When you make a fruit-based mead, one of the things that's recommended is to freeze and then fully thaw the fruit that you're using. The underlying reason for this is that the frozen fruit thaws out, the pulp and material in the fruit becomes more accessible for extraction. I learned this technique from the spree of making a dozen plus types of extracts, which was my side fascination during COVID. There's a guy who speaks really broken English from Italy that tells you how to make a cherry bounce, which I made and Oh, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever had. What I learned from him is when you freeze and then subsequently thaw fresh fruits, the cells in the fruit break down more readily and expose more of the fruit and thereby flavor compounds to the extraction medium. And so if you're pitching whole cherries in, you may not get a very good cherry tasting mead. When I defrosted the cherries, I simply mashed them up to break them up a little bit more, and then I pitched them along with their juices into the must. Now fast forward to today, and I recently strained the solids out of the mead bottles as they settled. I siphoned off the liquid down to the strata, where the fruit solids had settled in the bottom of the containers. I then combined all the fruit solids because there were peach in the bottom of one five gallon and peach in the bottom of the second five gallon into one big vat, one mass in a jar. And I subsequently spent a couple days just pouring the sludge into a container. I used an old coffee pot with the coffee basket lined with a tea towel poured the sludge in and let it soak through and then picked the coffee basket up and poured the mead that came out into a container. I then combined all the fruit solids 
that I could and put them in a container and froze them. More on that later. I could have just siphoned off the liquids out of the carboys. But let me tell you that when I strained the fruit solids, I netted probably 25% more liquid than I would have got. And all of that would have gone to waste if I had just pitched the solids. Now, the interesting thing is that liquid that came out of the solids in the jar seems a little bit cloudy. But I know from experience that, yeah, there's particulate matter in there and it will settle down and at some point I'll be able to take the liquid liquid off and go through a minor version of what I did. But again, I'm positive that I'm going to yield quite a bit of product out of that. I want to share a little bit of something different about the mead that I'm making and the stage that I'm in. We assembled the mead in the last week of December, the week that I was off from work. I subsequently brought the mead down to my basement, which is not heated in our house. I'm not a professional mead maker, but one thing that I can say is, from previous years' experience, my basement is far slower, the fermentation process, because of how cool it is, than if it had been left upstairs in the heated house or we had made this mead in the summertime. From what I understand, a slow fermentation is supposed to yield a better product, a better tasting mead. At least that's what I've read and heard from mead presentations on several occasions. I don't believe the mead that we made in December is finished fermenting yet. In fact, I will tell you right now, I know it's not. And the way that I could tell you is, on that day, we also made a base wildflower mead. That mead, which is just honey and water, along with the yeast it was inoculated with, is still fermenting. Fermenting away. I can look at the jar, I see the bubbles coming up, I see the bubbles going through the water lock. And in previous years, when I've made mead, that type of mead just plain honey and water, can be the benchmark to follow. I know in the cold environment that it's done when it clears out and it settles. That's the finish of fermentation. Then it's time to rack it off and get it off of the lees. I may have pulled the mead off the fruit solids very early, but I'm pretty sure that the fruit-based meads got more than enough fruit essence and you know from my personal schedule before we get into beekeeping season the timing of clearing the fruit pulp out of the meads was right so I pulled the trigger and I took care of it this week now every bottle of mead in progress is relatively clear and given what state it's in, I can look at the bottom of the container and see if the leaves are accumulating. One thing that I'm hyper vigilant about is ensuring that the mead never sits on any accumulation of leaves as I do not want that funky spent yeast flavor in the brew. So as I sit here recording this in my basement 
office slash man cave. I can think about the gallons and gallons of mead percolating in the room next room over. I can think about the gallons and gallons of mead percolating in the next room over. I'm always full disclosure and I have to say that this was a doozy, a colossal mistake on my part. But in the end, I've come to consider it a successful failure. And I can't wait for this mead to make its course because it's going to be amazing if the initial tastings tell me anything. I just have to make sure I don't screw it up from here on in. As it is my style, I have one more thing to throw on the pile about that session. On the day that Bob Kloss came over and worked with me to put that meat together, he brought me two things. The first was a three-pound jar of lanternfly honey. I have to take a moment to have a little sidebar about that product. Lanternflies, they swept through our region over the last couple of years. We still see them here and there. The invasive species came out of the woodwork as they crossed over from Pennsylvania and came into New Jersey. And, you know, as spring is springing soon, they're probably mustering to spread even further across this region. Lanternfly honey is a thing. And actually, to call it honey is a touch of a misnomer as the functional equivalent of lanternfly honey is what Europeans might call forest honey. I'm being lucid fast with this description because I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but lanternflies consume the product out of the tree that they're assaulting and they excrete it. And what they leave behind is a sugary refuse. Honeybees don't care that it came out of the backside of a lanternfly and well, they collect it and store it as a sugar source. Squeamish as this may be, it's not much different from aphid honey, which the Europeans call forest honey. It comes from the same backstory. Uh-huh. And honestly, some people laud this as the honey that they really prefer. It's, it's considered boutique and special. Lanternfly honey, like buckwheat honey, buckwheat honey, have you ever had it? has a unique profile when it comes to the taste and presentation. Honey has an unusual flavor, and many will say not in a good way. It's a bit flat and dull tasting, not overly sweet, and it has an undertone of, my, my thoughts, funky socks, dates, prunes. At least that's what it tastes like to me. Sometimes it has a bit of sourness, and some may attribute oaty undertones, like oats for breakfast, oaty. How you taste it is in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. Another characteristic that seemed to be common from the versions that I've tasted over the years is the texture is thick and fudgy, almost chewy. It's the oddest thing and if you think of it in a kind of high-level way, it reminds you of a profile of caramel in its texture. And actually, an analog that I'm familiar with is that it tastes like some of the oddball textures you get when you eat mochi, if you've ever had that product. 
we don't seem to be seeing lanternfly honey showing up in our region anymore. We saw it for a couple years, but something's changed. Either something started to take out the lanternfly population, some kind of new predator that figured out their tasty morsel, or they just simply dissipated from our area and have moved on to other places. It's hard to say. I did hear reports that they're making their way through Maryland last season. So, the funny thing to say is that I'm happy that Bob shared with me some of his collection of lanternfly because we never harvested any out of my yard. And he got a massive crop of it one year, and he's really not sure what he's going to do with it all. But I was happy to get a jar because somewhere in life it's going to be a novelty to break out a jar of lanternfly and say, hey, have you ever had this kind of honey? And as an added bonus, when you first tasted all those descriptions that I gave you, hmm, I don't know that you would really enjoy it. But the funny thing is, when we tasted it, what he brought over, it has mellowed and improved flavor-wise over time. It's really kind of cool. Now, I spoke of a Boucher, and somewhere when Bob and I were talking about what to do with all this lanternfly honey, we reasoned that it kind of presents itself with caramel-esque overtones, and maybe it would make a good mead. In the 2022 session, we made two types of mead with it. We used a specific Lauven brand yeast, that's supposed to be good with caramel-style honeys, bouchets. And we made a batch of lanternfly just simply by putting lanternfly and water together to see what the natural yeast would yield. Now that we've crossed over into 2024, I could tell you that, wah, 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 it didn't make a very good-tasting mead. I've heard people say they've made mead out of it and it came out wells, but, you know, the natural one, a little funky, a little bit sour. When you take the first sip of it, and it's not a pleasant sip, but, and this is a but, if you continue to sip on it, it actually comes around, and you get over that initial dislike, and you come to think, hmm, this really isn't terrible. I know that sounds really weird, but I promise that that is the actual experience of everybody that I've given a taste to. Case in point, have you ever had something that maybe you eat the first thing and it tastes a little funky, but the more you go, you're like, hmm, this actually isn't that bad. The better it becomes, the more you eat it. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not great. And I'll come back to that in a second. When we made me that year, I held on to the one that was natural and Bob took the batch that we inoculated with the specific yeast and I never got a taste of that. When he came over that day, he brought me some. We exchanged. Although he didn't want what I gave him. <laughs> they are distinctly different in how they came out. Now that one wasn't too shabby. I'm going to explain it in this way. If you're used to eating regular honey, and then you take a spoonful of buckwheat, which on the spoon looks like honey, but your brain registers it as, what the heck is this? Drinking that meat is kind of like that. 
when you sip it, the specific one that we inoculated with yeast, it has a little bit of the similar funkiness that the natural one did, but yet all the bad stuff about the natural one is toned down a little bit. It's less off-putting. Now, that's not the greatest description of a drinkable need. But again, if you try to drink a little bit, you'll come to appreciate in the same manner as the other one, in the same way that you may or may not like buckwheat honey, that it's really not that bad. I had a moment of clarity while sipping on it after trying to see if I liked it after a couple of encounters with it. My brain finally said to me, duh, why don't you back sweeten it and give it a little bit more of the honey and profile taste because as I've said, I like my meat a little bit on the sweeter side. And every mead that we've made so far, I've never required back sweetening. And if you're not familiar with back sweetening, sometimes when you make mead, the yeast in the mead consumes all the sugar into alcohol, and the final product is dry. Not too dissimilar from a dry white wine. And it doesn't have any of that sweet characteristic overtone that you get from a sweeter mead. I don't like dry white wine. <laughs> and so the meads that I want to make are always of a profile that they have residual sweetness to them when they're done. It turns out that the lanternfly mead that we made lacked any form of sweetness. It wasn't sweet honey to begin with. So I pulled some out and I back sweetened it by adding 50-50 honey and water to it. Bingo. Now, don't get me wrong, it still tasted like lanternfly mead, meaning it didn't change the flavor profile, so to speak. Buckwheat honey is going to taste like buckwheat honey. Lanternfly mead is going to taste like lanternfly. But like adding salt and pepper seasoning to a meal, incorporating just a little bit of honey vastly improved what it tastes like. So while it's not something that I think I would enter into a contest or break out when the family shows up, except for curiosity, for me personally, I can drink it. I can consume it in the context of knowing what it is. In fact, I'd rather enjoy it now that it's back sweetened and like those who would eat chestnut honey. Man, if you've ever had that stuff, Castagnano, it's nasty. Ooh. Or... For those of you who dislike buckwheat honey, but come to acquire a taste of it, this lanternfly stuff is actually not that shabby. So working with fruit meats, it's fun. It's a learning experience. We started making meats by making wildflower meats so that we could ensure we were not covering up funky meats with flavorings. We learned from the school that if you could make a really good base mead, then adding products to it will only make it better if you don't screw it up. That was our logic. Make a good plain mead and then adding fruit to it is not complicated. And now we're venturing into bouches and other things. All signs point to we're going to have a good outcome this year. And we're going to have a lot of it. <laughs> we're going to have plenty of mead. I mentioned this in the last show, and I wanted to repeat it for the record. I saved the fruit pulp by placing them in the freezer 
and there are cherry and peach daiquiris left for us. I don't know if that's a byproduct of pulling that fruit pulp early, but it did still have that flavor and we made a mm, peach daiquiri out of it and it was pretty darn tasty. So this is a first in the series. I have some things about assembly and about processing and bottling and other things that I want to cover in the successful failure series, and I'll bring them in subsequent episodes. So my plan is to close the episode down here, but I wanted to bring you an abbreviated local hive report and talk about one particular topic. I just went through a bunch of different hives in the apiary that didn't make it through to see what kind of shape they were in, whether there were any problems in putting that equipment back into service and checking in on how much honey was left over. I plan to make splits early in the season and use the leftover from whatever equipment didn't come through to build out those nukes and just need to make sure that everything is in good order there. One of the hives that's out of service now is the Lanes hive, which if you're not familiar with it, this is a special format hive, one they use in Western Europe. And it's one of those uh, unique hives in that the frame shape is completely different from a normal Langstroth hive. It's narrow at the top and deep in a, a contiguous manner, like a, a double deep almost. And in looking at that hive, the last five frames were full of capped honey. There was one partial and four double-sided capped frames. One of the things I like about that particular hive, when the time comes, is we can make cut comb honey out of it. And I've never actually checked to see whether those frames fit into our extractor. But we typically cut the comb out and do crush and strain with them. One frame was partial. Two frames were covered, but the exterior wasn't the pretty white that you would want for making cut comb honey. But the last two were in good shape and actually we gave them to Sharon and she just processed them. If you're not familiar with cut comb honey, this is where you cut a square out of the honeycomb and you place it into a shell the square is a three by three, four by four inch. You cut the honeycomb out and let it drain from where you cut it, the cells that broke open through slicing. And then after it's drained, you put it in a package. The one thing about the Layens hive that we have is I have two different styles of frames. Half of them are wired. And in the wired one, you take a piece of foundation and just slide it between the wires. The wires hold the tension on the foundation and the bees can build it down. On the other one, there's a top bar ridge, a V-shaped ridge that the bees will build down from. And through the middle, there's a single bar. It's, it's made out of like a small dowel. And so as the bees build down and they get to the halfway point, they'll build the comb around the dowel and then build it down to the bottom bar. And that holds the comb tight. What happens there though, is there's a thin midrib. 
And when you make cut comb honey, that's the way you want it. You either want it to be the bees build, no foundation, or you put in a special foundation, a light foundation that's thin. So when you chew the cut comb honey, you're not getting this heavy, thick foundation piece in the middle. I'm going to say Sharon made a half dozen, maybe a couple more um, cut comb pieces out of it. And she made chunk honey, which is where you take chunks of comb with any of the remnants and put it in a jar and pour honey over it. It kind of stinks to lose six of those frames, but yet, by my way of thinking, when you restart that hive, bees like to build comb. A new colony fresh going in spring on the, the bounty will typically uh, have wax builders primed and ready to go and they build those frames out really well. And it's time, and this is part of rotating the comb out. So every couple years I rotate the comb out of my hives and this one is at the point where it's been serviced for three cycles, I want to say. And it's time to take it out. Now I know, thinking about that cut comb honey, that I always leave the newest frames off the last six in the box so that every time we're doing cut comb, we're taking the freshest comb that we have. And it's all part of that spring planning that you do at the end of winter in order to keep your operation going. I have some uh, woodwork to do on the lands hive. The roof suffered some moisture problems. The one trim edge is rotted, the roof edge is rotted, so there'll be a little workshop work for me and I'm kind of happy that that hive is out of service to start the year so that I can get to some of that maintenance. Also the uh, entrances are looking a little shabby, they can be painted and so that hive will get refreshed and touched up before I put bees back in it. Local hive report, you know, <laughs> it snowed twice this week. And we're in one of those little niche bands, both times, where it dumps six to eight inches. I drove to work on Friday, and when I got there, uh, we had one inch of work in Princeton. The grass had just peeked through the top of the snow, where it was stacked eight inches on our picnic table out in the back. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that works sometimes, and I guess... That happens all over the place. Normally, that band of heavy snow falls north of Interstate 78 across the top of New Jersey and the bottom of New York State. Not this time. It went down through our region twice in one week. Snowblower's broken, so I had to shovel the driveway, which is a heck of a chore, but got it done. And when you find yourself rambling at the end, it's time to sign off. Beekeeping meetings this week coming up. So we'll see how that goes. I'm looking forward to the Northwest one on Thursday. It looks like a good program. And haven't really lined up the spring meetings of going somewhere yet. I guess I need to get on the stick and look and see what's going on. Next Saturday, I'll be at Burks in Pennsylvania teaching part of a beginner's course on how to do treatment options. Looking forward to getting out to a live meeting with a bunch of different people a couple times in this upcoming week. And uh, that is going to be exciting because there'll be new beekeepers there. 
And that's always fun to see the energy of people getting started. That's it. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast.